Well, guys, uh, we ended our series um, proving, I believe, from the scriptures that Jesus really is God in the flesh. And I wanted to transition from that into this new topic and this new series we're doing all about Christian identity. Um, you might not know this, but every single person on the planet, including you, including me, we all have a certain view of ourself. It's called, it's called perceived identity. Um, all of us measure our self-worth. We measure our value, um, by certain metrics. Okay. So, so everyone on the planet right now is drawing a sense of identity from certain things in life. And so everyone has a perception of who they think they are. And throughout our lives, what we do is we, we latch on to certain things that, and we allow those things to determine our value and our identity, right? And, and right now, your view of yourself is a conglomeration of all the different things throughout your life that you've given permission to define you and determine your value and your self-worth. But the question becomes, what happens? What happens when you live according to a false perception of who you are? In other words, what, what happens when you start to live out of a place of not knowing who you are and you actually believe a lie about yourself and you start thinking that your value and your identity is rooted in something that actually doesn't determine who you are? Well, the answer is you start living a lie because you're living out uh, a false perception of yourself. And so everyone on the planet right now has a perception of who they think they are. Um, and, and a lot of the times who you think you are, what you think defines you, it isn't actually rooted in the truth. It's not rooted in the reality. And the worst case scenario is that if you don't know who you are, you know, you might end up living mostly a lie or make decisions that aren't rooted in truth. But the worst case scenario is that you end up wasting your life entirely. And you might think these are hugely exaggerated claims. I don't think so. You need to understand every single person on the planet right now is living a certain way of life that's rooted in who they think they are. And so everyone's lifestyle is rooted in their perceived identity. If you don't know who you are, you won't know how to live, right? Um, and so Christians live in this constant, uh, almost state of uh, identity crisis. A lot of believers do. I find myself in the same place of sometimes letting certain things define me that can't, that don't have the power to determine who I am, that can't give me effective identity. And so... I think a lot of believers are in this thing called identity crisis along with the rest of the world because they misunderstand five specific things about their value and their identity. And, and I hope that today we'll be able to look at these five misunderstandings, these five misconceptions that really destroy people from the inside out. It, it begins to rot your life at the, at, the, at the core if you don't address these things and get to know who you are uh, in scripture, who God says you are. And so... You know, this is going to transition from the last series because of the fact that we've already established who Christ is in Scripture. He's the only begotten Son. He's the uh, the firstborn. He's the really the true and only Messiah and Savior. He's God in the flesh. He's the eternal Word emanating from the Father. We've seen Jesus a little bit clearer. And now I hope that as we transition, you're going to see yourself clearer. You're going to know yourself better because you and I, we, we see ourselves best in light of our creator. And so what you're going to see now in today's message is that Jesus being the only begotten son is the foundation of your new identity. Everything that you are, everything that you're going to stay for the rest of eternity, it's built on the idea that Jesus is the only begotten son. And so to better understand who you are, 
You need to understand who he is, and we've established that, but now we can understand how our identity connects to who he is. And so, you know, the questions we get to unpack today are why is it that God can call us one thing, and we know that, we know the scriptures, we've been taught it, and yet we live like we're something else, and we find it hard to believe that God really has made us who he says we are. Why is it that we can have this beautiful new identity in Jesus, and yet we live like we're something else? And I believe that it's because there are five key misconceptions the church has come to believe. There are five key, I think, ideas about our identity that the church fundamentally misunderstands. And so if you can correct your thinking about these five things that relate to your identity, you will better understand not just who you are, but how you are who you are and how to live like God, who God says you are. Because I can tell you who you are, right? So you can know, I, I know who I am. I know what scripture teaches. But do you know why you are? In other words, do you know why you are who he says you are? There's a purpose behind your identity. There's a reason he's made you who you are. Um, or do you know how you are who you are now? So not just the who, but the why and the how. Do you know the logistics of how you are now in the real time? who God says you are. Do you know what needed to take place for that to be a reality? And so hopefully we'll explore these things uh, in depth and you'll have much deeper understanding today uh, when it comes to our identity in Christ. Okay, so we've already established this, that in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is communicated as the only begotten son. And we've unpacked what that is. Uh, we know that that, that title or a way to explain who Jesus is, it relates to resurrection, it relates to his high priesthood, it relates to his kingship, it relates to his sonship, him being the rightful heir, it relates to his supremacy and preeminence above all things, it relates to his glorification and resurrection from the dead to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and it relates to him conquering all enemies. And so if you were to explain, what does it mean? What are all the different elements that come together uh, to, to form this idea of the only begotten son, well, I would say he's the first of new resurrected humanity. And I'm going to put this uh, right here for you. I want you guys to see it. Okay. Hopefully you'll be able to see this. I'm going to make it big. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. You should be able to see this now. Right here. I want you to see this. What it means for Jesus to be the only begotten son when he ascends to the father is that he effectively becomes the first of new resurrected humanity. He becomes the perfect high priest mediating a new covenant. He becomes the true king of the world, right? The rightful ruler. And Adam and Eve forfeited their authority and their rule in the garden to the serpent. And he wins that back through his life, death, and resurrection. He's the true king of the world in his resurrected human nature. He's the firstborn heir of the world in his humanity. He's the supreme name that saves and grants forgiveness and demands worship. He's the glorified one above all spiritual beings. He's the victorious conqueror of the enemies of humanity and God. And the reason I bring this up is because since your identity is built on the foundation of Jesus being the firstborn, the only begotten son, then every one of these ideas relates to who you are now. In other words, this is not just looking at Jesus and going, look at who he is now. Look at what it means that he's the only begotten son. You find your identity in each one of these things. 
He's the perfect high priest. And we'll, we'll look at what that means for us. He's the first of new resurrected humanity. We'll look at what that means for us. Same with him being the king. Same with him being the firstborn heir and the supreme name that saves and, and the glorified one and the victorious conqueror of all the enemies of God. All of these different ideas jam-packed into Jesus being the only begotten son. It determines who you are. You're going to see yourself clearest when you understand these ideas about Jesus. And so I'm excited to get to this. Hopefully we can unpack these things well. And I don't waste your guys' time. So um, what you need to know are, is one, two, three, four, five specific things about your new identity in Christ. Number one, number one is that Jesus actually makes way for our new identity. Your status in the sight of God, um, how God sees you, who you are, all of those things revolving around your identity. Jesus makes a way for us to be that through our faith in him. In other words, because you are positioned in Christ spiritually, you're located in him. Uh, you think about the way Moses was tucked on Mount Sinai when he goes, I want to see your glory, God. And God goes, okay, let me tuck you in this rock. He's tucked in the cleft of this rock to be able to behold the passing glory of God. That's the idea, is that you and I are tucked in Jesus. We're positioned in him. We're spiritually placed in him so that he effectively covers us and he protects us and he surrounds us and he actually uh, you know, defines us now and his identity becomes our own. As the first of new resurrected humanity, as the perfect human, he gives us his identity and covers us in his perfection, in his righteousness, in his holiness. Okay, so what you need to know is first is that your identity is in him. It's all about being positioned in Christ. Because you have faith in the Messiah, you are now a fundamentally different creature. Um, you have a new nature, you have a new heart, you have a new position, you have a new status. And so Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, now we get to get to the fun part and actually look at what Scripture says about these things, okay? It says, this mystery, there's a mystery that Paul's unpacking in Ephesians. And he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, okay? Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, this is the key. You and I, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whatever you are, you know, uh, ethnically, if you're in Christ, you are a fellow heir of all the inheritance he has access to. You're a member of the same body of Christ that all the believers are across time and space. You're a partaker of, you're a partaker of the promise, every promise that finds its yes and amen in Christ. Do you know why? Because through the gospel, through your faith in the Messiah, you've been positionally placed in him so that now all the promises that are, are true of Jesus as the first resurrected human, as the perfect human, all those promises are effectively realized and now apply to us. Every promise of God to the patriarchs in scripture, to the prophets, every promise of God is accomplished and fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. So now if you're in him, all the promises that are true and yes in him are effectively applied to you and me. So it's all about position and, and relationship to Jesus. 
It's all about being tucked in the rock of Jesus. He's the rock. All throughout scripture, he's communicated as the rock that we stand on, the rock that we're defended by, the rock that we find refuge in. Galatians chapter 4, it says, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, when the right time was realized and time reached its fullness for this specific thing to happen, God sent forth his son. So at just the right time, God sends his son. Born of woman, look at how he's explained. He's just like one of us. He's born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, so look, you and I are children of God. Do you see it? We've been adopted. But there's a legal process that took place. And if you don't understand the, the legal process that took place, why Jesus had to live as one of us, why he had to die, why he had to go through what he did, why he had to raise from the dead, then, then you won't really understand how valuable your new identity is. You won't be able to enjoy it because you'll think it's up to you to maintain. When actually Jesus is the one who wrote in blood, signed his name on your adoption paper so you could have his sonship. That's why he's one of us. That's why he's born under the law. Because he fulfills the law. He meets the totality of the law. He's the law embodied. He's the perfect human in our place that we could never be. So he meets the righteous requirements of God. He's one of us to represent us before the Father to take our sin. He redeems us under the law, right? And now you and I, our status, our identity, our value is that we are children of God, nothing else. Nothing else determines your identity and your value and your self-worth and your status in the sight of God, nothing else. You and I have been adopted as children, but look at what it's connected to. It's connected to the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. So, because he's been sent as one of us under the law to rescue us in our prison, to break us out now, because of who he is, we get to be children of God. In other words, our sonship or adoption is built on the fact that Jesus is the rightful heir and the true son of God. If he is not the son of God, if he's not the only beloved son, then we don't have effective adoption or sonship. And I'll explain why when we get to it. But know this, our identity is in him. It's not, a lot of people explain that like, yeah, God defines me. It's so much more than that. It's that Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done and all the promises fulfilled by him, now you get to be who you are forever because you're tucked away in the Messiah. You're, you know, uh, sealed and secured in him. So Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, it says, look, referring to Jesus, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Meaning this, God intended to bring many children into his glory so they could be adopted as children of God. That required the founder of their salvation, being Jesus, to be made perfect through his suffering. 
So notice in Ephesians chapter 3, we saw all of the promises that are now true of us and applied to us. They're only for us and, and apply to us because we're in Christ. Galatians chapter 4, because he's the son and he's born of woman under law, now we can be adopted as children of God. Now Hebrews 2 builds on that idea. It's not just that Jesus had to be sent. It's not just that Jesus had to be one of us and fulfill the law perfectly. It's actually that he had to suffer righteously and justly for all of human evil across time. Because he's done that, you and I get to be those many sons and daughters that are brought into glory. Meaning you now are children of God because someone else who was good enough, powerful enough, perfect, and valuable enough, he's actually paid the price and died to actually pay our debt in full. Because of who he is, you and I get to be now who we are. So this is one of the fundamental uh, ideas about our identity you have to understand. Who you are now has nothing to do with what you can produce, how well you can obey, how much you can resist sin, how much you can do for God. It has nothing to do with performance and, and accomplishments and success and achievements. It has nothing to do with that. Who you are now forevermore is based on who Jesus is for you. Get that like as much as you can lock that into your brain that who I am now forevermore is only because of who Jesus is for me. Number two, not only is our identity in him and because of him and through him, but we need to establish that God alone, and I say that in all caps, alone. You ever watch the show Alone on Netflix? My wife and I are loving that show. God alone determines your value and your identity. So if God calls you something, if he says you're something, if he, like he comes to Gideon, oh mighty man of valor, and he's cowering in a wine press, hiding all the food and course from the Midianites, he doesn't seem like a mighty warrior of valor. But if God calls you something, you better believe that's who you are. And you're at least going to be fitted for that and become that if you're not right now. But God decides who you are. He determines your value. You and I live in a culture where we're taught to let other people close to us determine our value and identity. You've been trained to like find a sense of value from what your parents say about you and getting their approval, whether it's in school, whether it's in sports, whether it's in work and career or getting a certain place in life or doing stuff for them. You've been taught and trained to find identity and value in what someone else says about you. And in whether or not they approve of you. That's why the, the entire culture we're surrounded by is constantly after likes and subscribers and followers and like me and approve of me because they, they've fallen into the lie that if I just get so-and-so to approve of me, I can finally be valuable. And they've given someone else the power to define who they are and define how valuable they are. And that's simply not true because no one else, including myself, gets to determine who I am or how valuable I am. Only the creator has that authority. And I know this pushes against the grains of culture where, again, the mantra of our day is you decide what you are. You decide if you're a turtle. You decide if you're a girl. You decide if you're fill in the blank. 
the thing is, when it comes to identity and the, the value and the essence and the nature of a person, we don't get to change that. We don't get to decide that. We get to discover who we are, but who we are has nothing to do with worldly titles and labels and temporary you know, things that we have. So you have to get to the point where you are not what your parents say you are. You're not what your pastor says you are. You're, of course, they can align themselves with the truth and call out the truth in you, and they can say things that are true, but at the end of the day, no one person on the planet and no group of people can define who I am and how valuable I am. This is the best news ever. Because if God says you're something, and if he's determined you're X amount of value, then guess what? No one else gets to have a say in it. So the whole world can be against you. You can be against yourself. You can be fighting against that yourself. But if God says you are fill in the blank, nothing's going to change that. So let me take you to Romans 4.17 to reinforce what I'm saying. And again, this is we know this like intuitively of Christi- as Christians. Like we know, well, God alone decides who I am because he's the only one that made me. No one else did. But Romans 4.17, it talks about how God decided Abraham would be the father of our faith. Okay? And so if God's going to say you're something, you are that. Or, you'll, or he'll make you that. So this is what Paul says. He says, as it is written, this is what God says of Abraham, and Paul's quoting God. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God of whom he believed. Here's the quotation. It ends right here. God looks at Abraham and goes, I've made you the father of many nations. Did Abraham become the father of many nations by his own efforts and labor? Was he qualified to be that? Did he educate himself into that? Did he earn that title? No. Did Abraham wake up one morning and decide, you know what? I'm going to be the father of a brand new faith system. Nope. This is God saying, I have made you the father of many nations. And end quote, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. I want you to catch that. God has the power to things that don't exist right now. He has the power and the authority to call something non-existent into existence. He can say, let there be light. He can say, let there be land coming out of the waters. He can say, let there be oxygen. He can say, let there be, you know, whatever it is, waters in the sky. He can decide to create out of nothing. And so if God has the power and the authority to create what doesn't currently exist and bring that into existence, then the same wisdom principle and truth applies to you and me. Not that we can do that, but that if God says we are something, he's going to bring that into existence. He's going to make that a reality because reality conforms to the word of God. Meaning if God speaks, reality has to adjust to what God has spoken. So if God says something about you, well now reality has to adjust to what the, the spoken word of God is about you. So if God looks at Abraham, who is not the father of many nations currently, and he says, I've made you that, well now Abraham's going to effectively become that. 
And nothing's going to stop that. Because what God says is true. Even if it's currently not a reality, it becomes true by the very fact that God said it. 1 John 1 or 3, let's go 3. 1 John 3, it says, See what kind of love the Father's given to us. Now watch. You go, what kind of love does God have for us? Well, that we get to be called children of God. So it's not just that God is calling you something you're not. Look at how he ends verse 1. And so, we are. We are. God loves us so much, he calls you, if you have faith in his son, he calls you his own. And even though you aren't currently his, he makes you his. And so, if God calls you his child, you become that. So we are. The reason the world doesn't know us as children of God is because it doesn't know him. The world system at large in rebellion to God does not know our father. So they're not going to know who we are and who God says we are if they don't know our father. Therefore, I don't need anyone else, especially unbelievers, to approve of what God has said. I don't need their validation. I don't need other people to confirm that I am who God says I am. If God says it, it's true. And I don't need anyone else to agree. Don't need anyone else to co-sign. Because even if they did, it wouldn't add any truth to the fact that God has decided to make us that. So the world doesn't know us because it doesn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Do you see it? Do you know why? Because he has the power to call things into existence and make things, you know, make reality conform to his word. And so if he says it, it becomes true. So if he says you're his child, you are his child. Whether you fight against it, have a hard time believing it, wrestle with that, just really insecure about it, it's still true. Your feelings and your emotions and your own thoughts about yourself don't actually determine who you are. Again, we live in a culture where it's like, you determine who you are. I don't. I can think things about myself that aren't true. Just because I think that about myself doesn't make it true. It's still untrue. So if you're pushing against this insecurities settling in and you're finding it hard to believe I'm a child of God, I look at my life, but you believe in the Son and you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, then what God says about you is more true than what you think about yourself. What God declares about you and has made true rings more true for eternity, whether you like it or not. And so God doesn't need you to agree with him. It's just better for you that you start to agree with what he says about you. It's to your benefit that you start to take your thoughts captive and align those thoughts with who God says you are and agree with him and receive it and stop fighting it and stop looking to your past to actually have any influence on who you are and stop looking to your parents and, and your spouse and your children and your success and your, your money in the bank. None of that is going to speak to who you are. None of those opinions are going to change what God has said. So identity is disconnected from everything in this world. That's, you have to get that. We are God's children now. And
and what we will be has not yet appeared. Even though we are children inwardly, we don't yet, the world doesn't see our glorified, redeemed bodies resurrected from the dead because that hasn't happened. When it does, the world at large will see who we've always been all along when we gave our life to Jesus. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So even though you don't see life and reality perfectly conform to what God says, and you're like, I don't live like a child of God. I don't believe most of the time that I'm really his. I, I wrestle with that. And, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. Like maybe you don't understand the gospel and you've not trusted in Jesus for salvation. Maybe you're still leaning on your efforts. Maybe you're still leaning on your ability and your performance and your, you know, obedience to God and and maybe you've yet to really lean on Jesus fully and just receive the free gift of salvation. Maybe that's true. But for those of you that have believed on the Son and you're wrestling with this, you, you, you really find a hard time, find it to be really difficult to take God at his word and, and believe that you are who he says you are. You are going to one day stand before the living God and you'll see yourself the way he does. Your, your outward appearance will match your inward identity. And even though your life doesn't currently match up with your identity perfectly, okay, my lifestyle does not determine my identity. My identity is actually going to determine my lifestyle. Meaning I'm not trying to live a certain way to become something. It's God changed me and I am something new. So now I'm going to live differently as a natural result of being a new creation. So, number one, Jesus makes way for our identity. It's rooted in him. It's based on him. It's because we're in him. So Jesus is the essence of our um, identity. And number two, God alone determines your value and your identity. You need to get that. And I know, like, intellectually you understand that but it's another thing to actually live like it's true and believe it so God alone determines who you are how valuable you are and I'll tell you if he's going to send his only beloved son the eternal word emanating from the father the means of creation the one who inhabits eternity if he's going to send his son to pay the price and be the sacrifice for our evil, then I would say that speaks tremendously to what God thinks about us and how valuable he regards us. Now, there's a difference between intrinsic value and assigned value. Let me explain. Inherently, within myself, even as an image bearer of God, I, I am not value, I am not equal to the value of Jesus' life. I'm not worth that. That's my inherent value. But God assigns us the value that says, I'm going to treat you in such a way that says otherwise. And even though me, like think about Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin, enemies of God, children of wrath, you know, living in wickedness, following the devil, all of that, shaking our fist in rebellion, that even as an image bearer of God in that sin and rebellion, I don't inherently give God a reason to value me. 
he decides to value us to the degree that he does. So when he sends his son to pay for your sin and you go, wow, I must be worth the price of Jesus' life. Inherently, I, I am not. I'm not worth that. But God decides to treat me as such and value me to that degree. And so even though I don't give God a reason to value me that much, his own grace gives him a reason to value us that much. That's what grace is. It's undeserved. It's when God treats you in such a way that is above and beyond what is actually inherently deserved. I'm not entitled to the life of Christ. I'm not entitled to salvation. There's nothing about me that deserves Jesus coming in the flesh, subjecting himself to the human condition, suffering at the hands of his own creation, dying a gruesome death, hanging there till it's finished, raising from the... I don't deserve that. None of us are entitled to that. So it must be that what God does and gives is something we don't deserve. Number three, your new identity. So think about the logic here. Uh, There's a progression to this. God alone determines who we are and how valuable we are. Jesus is the is the the foundation of our identity. Okay, you might say I want to I want to say it as many ways as I possibly can. It's as if the raw material that forms our new identity is the identity of Christ Himself. That is the raw material by which God makes us into a new creation. Is His Son's own identity, His Son's own righteousness, His Son's own holiness, His Son's own status with the Father. That becomes the raw material that God shapes us with and makes us into something new. So number three, the next step in this is that since Jesus never changes, and and Hebrews tells us this, since He is unchanging, then my identity being rooted in Jesus is also unchanging. My value in Jesus is also unchanging. Meaning your status in the sight of God doesn't go up and down. Your value in the sight of God doesn't go up and down. Your identity doesn't change because it's built on something that is eternally unchanging being Jesus. In fact, this is what Hebrews 13, 8 tells us. And some of you have never thought of it like this. You've never thought, you know what? Why have I thought that God's love for me goes up and down based on my performance? Why did I think that my status in the sight of God goes up and down and changes based on my ability to obey? And when I don't obey, then it changes. Why did I think that? It's because the enemies crept in. That's why Hebrews 13, 8, it says Jesus Christ is the same. There's a, there's a term for this. It's a theological term called immutability. Everyone say it with me. Spell it out in the chat. Do your best to spell out immutability. Let's see who can spell that. What it means is God is not subject to change like creation is. Creation is subject to change. God, as the unchanging, eternally existent one, he is the same yesterday, today, forevermore, okay? And who he is today is who he was yesterday, and it's who he'll be tomorrow. So God being immutable means there's no potential for him to change in character, in, in, in status, in rank, in power. He's unchanging. Jesus is given that same attribute, meaning his essence, his character, doesn't change at all. He's the same. 
He has the same attribute the Father has. He's immutable. So let's think about this. If you and I have our standing and our status built on Jesus, who is unchanging, okay, then that means your identity in Christ is not subject to change. You and I think it does. Again, this is, this is the lie we've been brought up to believe, is that somehow your identity and your value is rooted in what you can do, what you can produce, who you know, what you have, what you can achieve. And when you're doing good, you have a high value. When you're doing bad, you're not as valuable. And that's just simply a lie. Now, the world at large, the unbelieving community, sure, like they don't have an identity that's rooted in Christ. They have a sin identity. They actually identify with their sin and their evil. It actually does define them inherently until God changes that. But you and I, this leads me to my next point, our sin, and I want to be careful how I say this because everyone always takes this the wrong way, okay? Your new identity has nothing to do with your obedience or your failure or your sin or your achievements or your success or your knowledge or how many churches you've planted or how many people you've healed or how many Bible studies you've led or, or how well you know God. None of that has anything to do with how God sees you. When we speak of identity, here's what we mean. There is perceived identity where I see myself a certain way. Then there's actual identity, how what God actually says I am. And our job is to do our best to, to, to line up the two. So if God says I'm this, then I want to do my best to start to see myself the way he does. So I want my perceived identity, how, who I think I am, to match up with who God says I actually am. So if Galatians 3.2 says this, because here's, here's the lie. We get really down when we sin, when we fail, when we mess up with the same addiction and habit we've had for years, and, and we promised, we made an oath, we did everything we could to get out of that, and we're back in it again, and now I'm in the flesh, and, and I'm in this season right now of just periodically going up and down. We get into this mode of now I'm less valuable to God. Now I'm less loved by Him. Now I'm less approved and wanted by Him. There's a difference between God loving you and God approving of your lifestyle. You are not the product of how well you can live for him. You are not the product of your efforts or your labor or your achievements or your successes or your failures. Meaning all that you do is your identity is disconnected from that. It's a totally different thing. It's over here. It's over here. What you're doing, your lifestyle, does not determine who you are. It's the opposite. Who I am in the sight of God should change how I live. So while I, while I will say, you are not your sin. You are not your failures. You're also not your successes. You're also not your gifting. Some of you have been raised to find such value in your gifting and you draw a sense of identity from that and you build your life on that and you get a sense of confidence from that. You are not your achievements. You're also not your past. If you're in Christ Jesus through faith, you are the righteousness of God. 
You are holy, you are blameless, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are wanted, you're approved, you're everything he says you are. You are not who the world wants you to think you are. Galatians 3.2, it says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer? What's the answer? Let me know in the chat. Did we receive the Spirit by working hard enough or just by believing the message we heard? And if it's the second one, if it's that we receive the Spirit of God by hearing and receiving and believing, then since the Spirit of God is part of that inherent identity, meaning now that the Spirit indwells me, He makes me a child of God. He makes me forgiven. He makes me redeemed. In other words, our identity is also uh, connected to the fact that the Spirit of God indwells us and makes us a new creation. If that's the case, and it's just by believing, if you became something entirely new through faith, then that means you stay that through that same way, which is just faith. So it's not believing hard enough to stay what I am. It's the whole point of me saying this is you actually don't maintain your identity. You you don't maintain your value in the sight of God. It's not up to you to maintain your status and how God sees you. That's not on you. If it's through faith in the Son, then it's Jesus who actually keeps our identity intact and maintains who we are and sustains our identity and value. He, if it's all rooted in him, if it's based on him, then you are not the one who maintains your status in the sight of God. Jesus will absolutely succeed in maintaining that himself. He didn't need your help. But you and I, we've been churchified to think that You need to do enough, get involved in church, resist sin enough, and that will help you to stay a child of God. Bro, if you didn't become a child of God through works, you don't stay a child of God through your works. You don't. And guess what? Even when you're doing good, God doesn't love you more. Even when you're doing bad, He doesn't love you less because His love for you had nothing to do with what you could bring to the table. I know this is this is helping some of you, like big time. Like, like me, you've struggled with this for so long. Because the misconception for the first point is that, well, my identity, it's not in Christ. It is. And then the second misconception is that, well, God doesn't determine my identity like I like like fully. It's still up to me and, and the culture and the world. No, God alone determines your identity. And then the third misconception is, you know, that my identity changes. No, it's not. It doesn't change at all. It's based on Christ who doesn't change. And then the fourth one is, well, you know, my, my value and how God sees me and, and my status. It's based on how well I'm doing. It's based on how good I'm living. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to sin at all. That's actually a a reason to stay away from sin. How could you 
see such a beautiful reality like that and go, you know what? I just want to sin more. No, realizing that God sees you and loves you and approves of you and it welcomes you and it's disconnected from your performance. When I realize that, that's not going to make me want to sin. Like a real, a true believer will respond to that and go, that God who is so gracious and so merciful, I just want to live for him. I want to give him my all. Why would I not? So how you respond to that is often an indication of where you're really at. Galatians 3, just a few verses down, it says in verse 25, Look, now that faith has come, faith. We're no longer under a guardian. That's the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? Through what? Through faith. Since faith has come, this ability to trust and take refuge in the Son and lean on the Son, and rely on the Son, and believe on Him alone. Now that you have this opportunity, you are sons of God through that faith. So, faith is the method by which we are what we are. All all you're doing when you hear the gospel and you believe is you're going, you know what? I take God at His word. I really do. Like, I, I take Him at His word. Do you? Part of that means if he says I am who he says I am, I'm going to take him at his word. Now, that's a progression. I get that. Like, that's a journey to progressively begin to live like who he says you are. This is why I disconnect the lifestyle from your identity. Because for the rest of our lives, we are still who God says we are in Christ, but I don't always live like it. So my job for the rest of my life is to more and more live like who he says I am and match my life up with my position or match my lifestyle up with my status. And even when I fail and I don't live like who he says I am and I don't live up to the the truth of God, that doesn't change who I am. So there's one more thing that often gets misunderstood when it comes to our identity. And it's this. A lot of people know like who they are and they know uh, why they are that. Well, I'm a new creation because God has a purpose for that and he's going to use me and I'm a part of the body and he's going to use me to advance the kingdom. But a lot of people, they don't know how they are, who they are. Like we jump from, hey, Jesus died, this, this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. He was nailed to a Roman cross. He actually paid for all of human evil. He rose from the dead. And now you are a child of God. And we're like, yeah. And that's fine to start there. But if you don't spend the rest of your life unpacking that and understanding it deeper and actually like coming to understand all the details that surround that, you you will play this game called up and down identity. You'll live in this 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 state of, you know, inconsistent identity and I, perceived identity, and you're like, I don't, I feel great today, and tomorrow I don't feel great. So, part of my job today is to show you how you have this new identity, and and you can sum it up and go, well, Jesus lived and died and resurrected, and he ascended to the Father. Yes, but there's a process that's involved. Let me take you to First Corinthians 15 to show you what I mean. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, you need to understand this. 
If we're going to be saved, redeemed, children of God, there are three big enemies that Jesus has to conquer and deal with. So 1 Corinthians 15, it says, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. There's no talking about the devil here, but the law is not an enemy. I just highlighted it, okay? What I want to show you is this. To break the law of God, in other words, to be a sinner, is to earn the penalty or the just punishment called death, okay? Breaking the law is called sin. Rebelling against God is called sin, but it's not just an action. Sin is an inherent disease that plagues humanity. It's a spiritual disease that none of us can do anything to fix. We're separated from God. That is death. Death is not just ceasing to exist or, you know, going into the grave. Death is to be in exile, separated from the one who is life. So the result of sinning or breaking the law and having this spiritual disease called sin that I can do nothing about and I can't fix it because imperfect people can't yield perfect results, the result of that is that I am in a state of death. So when Jesus comes, he's going to deal with the devil. That's the first big enemy. He's going to deal with our death. That's the second big enemy. He's going to deal with our sin. That's the third big enemy. But part of that whole equation is the law. Because the law of God enforces that sin results in death. It's almost like the law is there to act as a sort of uh, prison guard to make sure that you get the just penalty for your crime. Okay, so when Jesus comes, there are four things he's going to deal with. Sin, death, the devil. Of course, within that are all his demons. And then the law, which is not bad. Paul says the law is good. just can't save you. So Galatians 3, it says, Look, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. In other words, this law didn't free us. This law didn't give us life. It actually declared our death and enforced our punishment and showed us the standard that we could not meet. The law exposes our inability and shows us how helpless we are. Don't We don't look at the righteous standard of God in the Ten Commandments and go, ah, that's what I need to do to get to heaven. It's no, that's what you can't do and you're screwed. So the law actually imprisons and holds us captive until faith comes, right? So then the law was our guardian while we were on death row until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So we're sitting under this thing called the law, which is why Jesus comes into it, this prison cell that we can't break out of called death that the law enforces us to be in, and faith was coming. So the law was essentially like a babysitter, going, well, Jesus hasn't come yet to fulfill me, so let me just show you what you can't do and hold you, in, in one sense, hostage, because you can't meet the standard of God. You have to be perfect sucks because you can't do it no one's perfect and then jesus comes into the world and he goes i can be i can be so back to verse 13 of the same chapter christ redeemed us from the curse of the law the curse being death by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so in christ the blessing of abraham might come to the gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith 
In other words, there's a curse that the law actually enforces. And the law is not a curse, but the law actually declares you are cursed since you broke the law. So Jesus comes into our predicament, our prison cell, and he goes, I can actually meet the standard for you. And he redeems us. How? By becoming a curse for us. What does that mean? Well, he took death upon himself. Romans chapter 8 says that God actually punished or condemned human evil all across time and space. He punished evil in the flesh of Jesus. So in that sense, Jesus takes our death, pays our sin debt, becomes in his flesh the embodiment of human evil so that sin could be handled and paid in full by his precious life, and he's hung on a tree to take our curse upon himself. So, so therein is how death is dealt with. He dies our death. He pays our penalty. He meets the law in our place, right? Which is why Galatians 3 will say he has to come born of a woman, born under the law to rescue us from the law. And then you go to the same, uh, same book, a chapter later, verse 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is what I was talking about. He was born of a woman. Number one, he has to be one of us. He can't just be a phantom. He can't just, you know, look like a human. He has to actually be a human being. So he takes on our human condition and the nature of humanity, and he's under the law. He comes into our prison cell to break us out, to break us out and to help us meet the law. Because Romans 8 will go on to say, so that the law of God is fulfilled in us who are believing in Jesus so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, so notice, there is no adoption until the law is handled. Legally, we belong to another. We actually do. Now, God made us and he owns us, but technically, our allegiance and our loyalty lied with the devil. Ephesians 2 says this. We were held captive. So, the devil was, in that spiritual sense, our father, because we did what he did. And this is what Jesus tells, tells the Pharisees. You're of your father, the devil. And they go, what? Yeah, right. We know Abraham. He's our dad. So Jesus comes to deal with our death. How? By fulfilling the law in our place, perfectly meeting the standard. And then through that legal process, adoption can come into our, our lives. We can be adopted. Okay, so let me show you what I mean. Adoption is not possible until uh, we are legally set free to belong to another because the law enforced that we actually were under death as our penalty because of sin and we belong to the enemy in that sense. For through the law, he says, I died to the law. How or why? So I might live to God. So, in other words, the law acted as a kind of, well, Galatians uses the language of guardian, a tutor, to point us to Jesus. And through Jesus perfectly meeting the law in our place, we can actually die to the law. Meaning, our old, dead, sinful self that was in, under penalty, on death row, under the law, right, that old self is gone. That old life is gone. So now we can come alive 
to belong to another as a new creation. Because that old created self is still sitting there on death row under the penalty of the law, you know, deserving death. And we couldn't do anything about that. So Jesus goes, let me give you a new life so you can belong to someone else. And then Romans will use the analogy of, of a, a spouse. And I'll get to that. So now we can live to God or belong to another because we died to our previous guardian being the law. And we don't belong to our, we're not held captive by the law. Now we're not free to break the law. We're free from the penalty of the law to belong to God as his children. So there's a legal process. There's a legal process. Um, And it, it involves Jesus becoming what we needed him to be. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, God made Jesus to be the embodiment of human evil in his flesh, even though he never sinned, never failed, never made a mistake. Why? So that now in him, this is the key phrase, in Jesus, we can become the righteousness of God. Do you see the transaction? He becomes what we were, so we can become what he is. He takes our death, he takes our evil, he meets the standard of God in our place, he's perfectly one of us, since none of us could be perfect, and we get to have his righteousness, we get to have his perfection, we get to have his holiness, we get to have his sonship. All That's a transaction. But he had to be one of us to effectively pay our debt, take our death, and handle our evil. Romans 7 Here's the image that Paul's going to use, okay? He says, Do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? He's going to use the, the image of a, a, a marriage. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's still alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law of marriage. Because that covenant was between her and her living husband. But if he dies, that covenant is null and void because he's gone. Accordingly, she'll be an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, right? But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress, right? Because she's free from the law of marriage now that spouse died. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. So he uses that analogy to show you what's happened to us. Just like a woman who is bound by law, the covenant of marriage, to her husband, just like she's free to marry another if her husband dies, well, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you can belong to another. So Romans uses this language. Galatians 3 uses this language. Galatians 4 uses this language of belonging to another. And now we can because we've died to what held us captive because Jesus came to set us free from it. And since he's been raised from the dead, we can follow in his footsteps and, you know, die to our old life with him. Just like he died, we can die to our old life. And just like he was raised, our spirit comes to life as a new creation so that we can bear fruit for God, right? So, 
again, the language is the law held us captive. We died to that. There's an old self that was penalized, sitting on death row under the law. Well, that self is gone and passed away. And I came to life as a new creation, just like Jesus died and came to life in a new, resurrected, glorified body. So, you know, it goes like this. Um, What we looked at earlier, and I want to bring this to your attention real quick so you can see it on the screen. Remember, we went through Hebrews, and we talked about how Jesus, when he's, you know, uh, uh, I guess, explained as the only begotten son, what this means is, hopefully you can see it, what this means is when Jesus is the you know the only begotten son from the dead he becomes what the first of new resurrected humanity he becomes the perfect high priest the true king of the world the firstborn heir the supreme name all these things but i want to focus on this today remember how i said every one of these every one of these ideas that have to do with Jesus being the only begotten son his kingship his heirship the supreme name the conquering the enemies each one of those descriptions actually benefits and applies to us. So the first one is this. When Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, resurrects from the dead, he is now the first official resurrected human being. He's the first of new creation, you might say, in that sense. Not that he's a created being, but the new world that's coming, you know, his glorified resurrected body is the first of that. And then he invites us into that. So him being the first of new resurrected humanity allows us to become, well, what he is, specifically children of God. So there's a process, not just legally, where Jesus has to handle our death, pay our debt, fulfill the law, you know, allow us to die with him to be raised to life a new creation, but the new creation rebirth is also a process. Meaning, you and I, it's not just like God, I don't want to oversimplify it. It's not just like one day you're an enemy of God and then you believe and then God looks at you and go, actually, you're my son now. Hooray. There's a whole thing that takes place. There's a death. There's a raising to life. There's a coming to, to, to new life just like Jesus. And that's called the regeneration. It's called the new birth. You become a child of God by being born again. This is the language Jesus uses in John 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is going, I got to go back in my mama's womb? Ah, that was weird. Jesus goes, look, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So to enter into the kingdom, there's a new birth, a, a, a coming into existence of sorts that has to happen spiritually. Your spirit has to be made alive. You have to be born a new creation. John chapter 12, verse, uh, 1, verse 12, it says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Meaning, you don't just become a child of God just because you want to. There's a privilege and a right that Jesus extends to you. Because you and I could want it all we want. If Jesus didn't accomplish our salvation, you, you and I wanting it doesn't do anything. Jesus has accomplished our salvation as the only begotten son, as the true beloved of the Father. 
So now we can actually have his right, his sonship, and we can become children of God through him. He gives us, as a free gift, he extends to us his very status as, as a child of God, you might say, as the son of God. He goes, you can have my sonship. I can give you the privilege and the right to be a part of my father's family. And you can become a child of God. How? Well, we were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a, a rebirth that is of God spiritually that takes place. And that's what Jesus speaks to in John 3, where we become a new creation and we are born again. This time in the likeness, the perfect likeness of Jesus. So all you have to do is believe and receive Christ. That's it. And then Jesus goes, wow, let me give you the right to be in my father's family. Let me make you born again. Let me send you my spirit who will testify of your sonship. <clears throat> First Peter chapter one speaks also to the born again experience. First Peter one, three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. To what? To a living hope. How? Well, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Wow. So, being born again is only possible because Jesus rose from the dead. And God, when you believe, he causes you to be born again and your spirit comes alive, and your old self is gone, and you become a new creation. This is what Ephesians speaks to. Ephesians talks about how you are his workmanship. That's actually talking about the church. First Peter, uh, a few verses down, in verse 23, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since... You've been born again. Notice, Peter's not trying to guilt trip you into loving people and going, don't you want to be born again? Don't you want to be a child of God? He's going, look, since you've been born again, it's appropriate, it's reasonable to love from a pure heart. And you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So through believing in the Son, God causes you to be born again. Jesus gives you the right to be a son or a daughter in the family of God. And the word of God, through what you believe, that word produces this new life we have. The last verse I want to look at is Galatians 4. Which we already looked at, but specifically verse 6. It says, because you are sons, okay, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Notice how the father, the son, and the spirit are all involved in this adoption process, in this born again process. The spirit goes to work to apply the work of Christ. The father causes us to be born again. Jesus gives us his position and status as, a as the son of God. He invites us into his family and the Spirit of God cries out, Abba, Father. So, guess what? You're no longer a slave. 
your old identity was that you were a slave. Not anymore. Your new identity is that you're a son. And that's cool that the God of the universe is your father. But also it's more than that. You're an heir. You inherit the estate of the father. And so the inheritance of Jesus, he actually goes, hey, I want to share this with you guys. I want you to come and enjoy my full inheritance and I'll write your name on it. Just believe in my work. Trust in me to make you righteous. And my inheritance is yours. And Hebrews tells us he's the heir of the whole world. So you're no longer a slave. It's hard to... When you come out of slavery into sonship, it's hard to break that kind of mental uh, process of, but I identify as, as, as a slave because I identified as that for so long, it carries over into my sonship. I get that it's hard to break that, but I'm trying to help you break that today by showing you that you are no longer who you used to be. Even though the, the, the shame of your past and at times you, you, you know the identification with your sin still creeps in, it literally has no place. It's not, it's not even true. When you identify with, I am my sin, you're not. I am my past, you're not. I am my failures, you're not. And you're not your successes either. You are at the core of, you're a child of God. You're an heir. So if you're wondering, well, who am I? If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, we'll say it like that, you at the top of everything that you are, mainly, if I were to tear you open to the core and look at your spiritual self, you are a child of God. You're an heir through God. That's who you are. I know you were a slave for so long that you still identify with that. You're not. And you slowly break out of that the more you know Jesus. I promise. But I'm trying to get you to understand that you are nothing close to what you used to be. You are completely different. Yeah, but I don't live at all the way God wants me to and I still struggle. Your lifestyle is disconnected from who you are. It doesn't determine who you are. Again, I, I said this earlier, it's the opposite who I am is going to change how I live. I'm not trying to live a certain way to become something. I'm trying to live a certain way because I already am something. So, as I spell myself, what I'm going to show you real quick is kind of where we are going the rest of this series. I hope this sets the tone a bit for um, what you can expect the rest of this series all about identity. Um, but, when The minute you get saved, let me go through a list of things. The minute you believe in the Son, you become just something completely different. And it's something you could never become on your own. It's something you don't deserve. It's something you and I didn't achieve. But look at this. John 5, 24. You have passed from death to life. Colossians 1, 13. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Hebrews 10, 14, you are sanctified once for all. Romans 5, 1, you are justified and you have peace with God. Romans 5, 10, you're reconciled to God and you're guaranteed to be saved by his life. 
Romans 7, you've died to the law and you're set free and now you belong to the Father. Romans 8, 1, you're free from all punishment and all condemnation. These are not just descriptions of you like, like I'm wearing a black shirt. This is fundamentally who you are at the core. You are made perfect, Romans 8, 4. You have fulfilled the law in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 4. Romans 8, 9, you're no longer of the flesh. You don't identify with your fleshly body anymore. You are now of the Spirit. Romans 8, 16, you're children of God and heirs with Christ and you're filled with the Spirit. Romans 8, 30, the unstoppable process of sanctification is set into motion where you're guaranteed to be glorified with Jesus. Ephesians 1, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, you're chosen, you're holy, you're blameless. Ephesians 1, 7, you're forgiven from all sin, past, present, and future. Ephesians 1, 11, you have access to the fullness of Jesus' inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13, you're filled with the Spirit of God as the temple of God collectively. Ephesians 1, 22, you are the body of Christ and you play a unique role. Ephesians 2, 6, you're raised up and seated with Jesus in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 13, you're brought near by the blood of Jesus into the presence of God. Ephesians 5, 8, you are the light. Ephesians 5, 32, you are one with Christ. Hebrews 9, 12, you have eternal redemption and you are eternally redeemed. Hebrews 9, 14, you have a clear conscience from all sin and all dead works now. 1 John 1, 7, you are cleansed from all your unrighteousness, all your wickedness, all your evil and sin. It's gone. You're completely clean from the inside out. 1 John 2, 13, you have overcome and conquered the evil one and the kingdom of darkness through Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. And nothing can change that. Nothing can reverse that. You can't affect that. It is what it is because you've taken refuge in Jesus. And he covers you with this big old cloak. Let's just say coat. Big old coat that you can't, that doesn't fit you. It's huge. But he goes, it's yours. It has your name on it. And you're wearing it and it's so oversized and you're going, how can this be mine? I don't fit it. And he's going, just because you don't fit into it doesn't mean it's not yours. This is yours. Now go and fill it out. In other words, this is what it looks like to live more like who we are in Jesus, to become more like Jesus in the way that we live. And since I am all these things already, and I have this oversized coat that doesn't fit me, for the rest of my life, it's just our job to go and fill that out more and more by becoming like Jesus. So your job is to know Jesus so you can know yourself better. And as you do, everything changes. Everything changes. If you guys did not already know this, this is Above Reproach Ministry. It's actually an online ministry that we have. And we have a bunch of free stuff at AboveReproachMinistry.com. You can check out. Uh, You can uh, click the link in the YouTube description or on TikTok, click the link in my profile and you can just click right here, free stuff. There's devotionals, free Bible study skills courses, free Bible study worksheets, all my sermon notes that I've released. We have a completely free community, church community on the Discord app. All those links are in the description below. You can get a copy of my book here. It's called Fruitful. 
you can you know get some merch. You can check out our podcast. So if you don't want to watch my ugly face, you can listen to my voice, which is probably just as ugly. And then we have a second podcast. It's called Above Reproach Church Podcast. And it's a, a podcast for the local church or for people who are in the local church and, you know, wanting to just know how to navigate life. And so um, we have a bunch of stuff going on. If you'd like to donate to this ministry, you can go to aboveapproachministry.com slash donate. And then there's a bunch of ways to give. You can give straight from credit card or debit. You can send a check to PO Box 338. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, or Patreon. We are crowdfunded. And so I have a wife and two kids, all the ministry we do, all the free resources we make for anyone around the world. Um, it's only possible because of generous supporters like you. So don't feel obligated. Don't feel guilt tripped to doing it. But if you feel led and you're grateful and you've benefited from this and you want to give back and help us continue teaching people how to read the Bible and equipping the church and reaching the lost, then go ahead and give however you feel led. Um, coming out soon... Um, I've been working hard behind the scenes on a um, a 40-day in-depth beginner's Bible study skills program. And so um, it, there's going to be an 11-day option. There's going to be um, a 25-day option. And then there's going to be a 40-day option. It's all completely free, by the way, because of generous supporters like you. So if you want to sign up, uh, early sign-ups, uh, you can you can do that now. Um, it's on. I just posted it on YouTube. I'm trying to think where I'd find the link. Um, I'll probably link it in this description of this video. So check back in like two minutes, and I'll have that linked up. Um, but check out the last post I made, the last community post I made on YouTube. You can just you know get a head start and get ready for when we do release that program completely. Um, there's going to be videos, there's going to be homework, there's going to be, you know, different questions that'll help you think through. It's a, there's a, it's a full-blown 40-day uh, in-depth Bible study skills course from beginning to end, observing, interpreting, applying different genres of scripture, um, all those different thing, things, themes and patterns, keywords. I just want to help you as much as I can to learn how to read the Bible. And so if I can do that, I'm going to do it. And so I'll Here's the form you can fill out to get ahead and sign up early. I'll link it in the YouTube description right here. That right there is the form. Just click that link, copy paste it in your uh, your browser, and then um, when you do, it'll pull up a form. And then what you'll do is there's a personalized Bible study worksheet you'll print out, or you can fill it out digitally. And that's just for you. That's not for me. That's for you. Hopefully, it'll help you bring clarity and precision to your personal Bible study plan, help you stay committed, help you stay on track. And so I think that's all I have for you guys. Um, I'll drop the link in the TikTok, um, whatchamacallit, TikTok chat as well. And so if you're on Facebook, YouTube, or TikTok, it's in the chat. You can see it. Um, click that, fill it out, and then you'll have um, access as soon as it comes out. We'll notify you. All right? That's all I have for you guys um, today. Thanks for watching. You guys keep moving towards Jesus and we'll be back next Monday uh, for part two of this series called Children of God. And then Wednesday we'll do a Q&A and have fun together. All right. So I'll see you guys there. Thanks for watching.